From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., welcome to the Kalb Report, covering the world, a conversation with CNN's Christiane Amanpour. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University, in association with the CBS Radio Network. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. And now, Marvin Kalb. Hello and welcome to the National Press Club and to another edition of the Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb, the Edward Amaro Professor Emeritus at Harvard and the Welling Presidential Fellow at the George Washington University. Our focus tonight is the foreign correspondent and our guest is Christian Amanpour, CNN's Chief International Correspondent. She's worked for the network for the past 25 years. Since the Persian Gulf War of 1991, she has covered just about every major international story, wars, natural disasters, famines. In fact, she jokes that U.S. soldiers follow her on television to find out where they are going to be deployed next. <laughs> she has interviewed every world leader, from Ahmadinejad in Iran to Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Name the place she's been there, name the leader, She's talked to him. And for her extraordinary journalism, she's won just about every prize that's winnable. She is a nonstop phenomenon, having been, for example, since January of this year in Cambodia, Thailand, North Korea, South Korea, and India. And in addition, she's moved her family from London to New York. Christian Ahmad for welcome. Thank you. It is a distinct pleasure, and it's an honor to have you with us. Now, let me start with you. You were born in Britain. Your mother is English, but you were raised in Iran. Your father is Iranian. <clears throat> in 1979, as you put it, quote, my world and my worldview turned upside down. After what you described as a privileged upbringing, here I'd like to use your words, a revolution hit my country and overnight, we were strangers in our own homeland. We lost everything, home, possessions, and people. We watched in horror as our friends and family members were arrested, jailed, tortured, and some even executed. Those are hard times to forget, if you ever wanted to at all. Are they on your mind? They, of course, are on my mind. They shape uh, my life, and I believe they've shaped my profession. Because I was 20 years old when the revolution hit Iran, and I did grow up in a privileged uh, environment. But not only that, I grew up very protected and isolated from political reality and the realities of the world. It was a very idyllic childhood, at least from my vantage point. Clearly, it wasn't for everybody. Um, but that shaped me wanting to get into journalism because having seen what I saw at that, for me, young age, 20 was, was young, I, I was not that sophisticated, and to have seen martial law, to have seen the revolution, to have seen everything turn upside down, all the people that I grew up thinking were right and good now being told that they were bad and wrong. Everything that I thought was the right path now being told was the wrong path. I wanted to cover these kinds. I wanted to be involved in these kinds of events, I thought. And if I was going to be, I wanted to be as an observer and a player and not as a victim. And that's what 
put me on the road to journalism. But you could also have been a philosopher. You could have been a doctor. You could have been any number of things. Well, why journalism? Well, one of the reasons why I wasn't a doctor is I didn't get good enough grades to get into <laughs> medical school. And actually, that's the little secret about why I didn't go to, to, to follow that path. But um, some have actually said that, and in fact, I think that being a war correspondent and being uh, at the cutting edge in terms of observing so many world crises, people have asked me, how do you deal with it? And I say, well, it's a little bit, I think, like being an emergency room surgeon. You must get the job done. You must be clear-eyed. You must be, you know, have the stamina to be able to think and act and do it without getting overwhelmed by, by what you're faced with. And only afterwards, you know, if you... Many of us do get overwhelmed, but I feel that that's, that's how I get through it, by doing my job in a, clear, in a clear-eyed way. And why a journalist? Because I suppose because I saw a lot of this, not just happening in front of me, but on television and in the, and in the printed press. And when I left Iran um, around the time of the revolution, because I was there for the whole lead-up, I went uh, to my family in England, my grandparents, and I watched what was happening in my homeland on television, and I read about it in the newspapers. So that shaped me as well. And I thought that was a great profession. I thought it was a great way to, to spend my life. And I'm committed to this profession because I do think it's an incredibly noble one. The University of Rhode Island is where you spent your college years. Yes. Why there, and did that university have anything to do with shaping your interest in journalism? Was there a particular professor? The, the, it, was an, it was an amazing place, um, and I had a great time. It was my first introduction to American life. It was at a time when I was a freshman, an older freshman, and joining a lot of you know, young 18-year-olds who were you know, just coming to college for the first time. And I learned so much about America. Um, I learned so much about different American disciplines in terms of education. I had American literature, American political science, American history, um, all of those things which I'd never learned before and never really knew, and lived right in the middle of a situation that was very close to me as well because this Iran crisis was still at full boil. The hostages were still uh, captured. They were still imprisoned when I was at university in the United States. And, um, you know, occasionally it was uncomfortable being an Iranian. I never hid it. I never pretended I was just English. I never wanted to, you Were know... Were you treated badly at any time? No, I was never treated badly. But I tell you something. At some universities, some of my friends who... Some of them were Italian, some of them <laughs> were, were, were Greek, some of them were different uh, nationalities, and very few of them did report that they had been insulted because mm. people thought they were Iranian. This was what was going on at the time. And it was very instructive to me, and it was uh, interesting to navigate uh, those particular waters at that particular time. Now, you've been back to Iran any number of oh, times yeah. since then. Do you feel, given your early experience in Iran, that you can judge that story with some detachment? Yes, I do, because I go back to an Iran that's not the Iran I grew up in. And despite the fact that I know it very well and that I had family there, that I still have family there, I speak the language and I know the country, I know the history, I know the people. And I actually think that it has given me an enormous amount of, 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 um, of strength in order to cover this story. By that I mean information, data, that I think, as you know, many people probably know, that there is a sort of a 
a one narrative when the story of Iran and the United States is, is written uh, or broadcast. And I do feel that I have the ability to get behind that stereotype, to get behind the cliches and the headlines, and to approach it from, I think, a fuller, a fuller way than what if I didn't know anything about what it. What are we missing? I think um, that the people of Iran have now proved over the last 10 years, over and over again, in election after election, that they want reform that they want to be part of the world. There's a new poll out in one of the Sunday newspapers mm -hmm. uh, this weekend, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think is, is incredibly encouraging, but it's this trend that we've reported, been reporting on CNN for the last 13 or 14 years since we've been going back regularly, since I've been going back, that the young people there, and it is an overwhelmingly young country, the majority of the people are under 20 years old, and they want mm -hmm. to be part of the world. They don't want to be isolated and boxed in and imprisoned. They want relations, for instance, with the United States and with the rest of the world. They're highly educated. It's a very potent and powerful workforce. Unfortunately, there are almost no jobs for the young people. About a million or more young people come onto the job market every year in Iran, and there just isn't the place to absorb them. So I think that maybe we're missing that part of the story. And Whenever I go with my American colleagues, for instance, of course, everybody's sort of nervous the first time they go, the Americans, because of the history. Um, but each time they step off the plane there, from the beginning, they're welcomed, and it's a hospitable place to them on a people-to-people -to -people basis. And I do think, in a nutshell, what we're missing is the people-to-people -people reality, and that's what I um, try to focus on, as well as the politics. When these people hear... Um not just the President of the United States, but many people in the U.S. government speak uh, so suspiciously of what it is that, that the Iranian government might be doing. You think there's some merit there. In other words, do you feel that the leadership of the government, distinct from the people you're describing, may in fact be developing a nuclear weapon? You know, this has been a big controversy, obviously, for as long as I've been reporting. Uh, we hear different things from the intelligence community in the United States. Uh, at one point, people are convinced that they're building a nuclear weapon. At another point, the highest intelligence report, the NIE, says, well, actually, in 2003, we believe they moved away from uh, weapons design. Now, people are thinking, well, maybe we would given them too much credit. Now we'll go back to saying they're building a weapon. The truth is that I don't know. But I've said to people, you know, I probably wouldn't know a nuclear weapon if I fell over it. That's not my job. My job is to go in there and ask the rigorous questions, uh, show the pictures when I can. And I've had, with CNN, amazing opportunity to go into the nuclear facilities. We were the first at CNN to go into the facility at Boucher. We were the first uh, to go into many of these places. And we reported and we showed what was going on to the best of our knowledge. Just come back from North Korea, we had very rare access into the plant at Yongbyon, which by American estimates and uh, the officials in the United States say has been closed down uh, since July. So I think that our job is not to make grand political judgments and not to join the political or ideological wave of the time, but to report the facts as we know them. We do live in, in a fact-based world. There is reality. It's not all just opinion and guessing and, and uh, punditry. And that, I believe, is the crux of my job, to go out there and try to be 
the eyes and the ears and try to bring the facts back. Christian, how did you get um, the job at CNN? And I asked the question for a couple of reasons. One of them is, you're not the, the blonde who normally appears. Uh, you have an intriguing accent, uh, but it's not an American accent. And you get a job at CNN, which was the Chicken Noodle Network, and nobody paid it much regard. You do remember those days. Watch it. 1983. 1983. How did I get it? I'll tell you how I got it. Um, Of course, I wanted to be uh, in the big leagues. I wanted to be at CBS, at ABC, at NBC. I thought that was what we were meant to be doing. And I very, you know, full of optimism and great spirit, came out of university. I'd done pretty well at university. I'd got a great job as an intern and then hired briefly at the local NBC affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island, WJAR Television, which was a fantastic education with great people there who really were my mentors and who were fantastic. Um, the head of the investigative unit, Jim Terracani, is still doing his job, and he's fantastic. And he and a group of people there said to me, because clearly I was getting rejected everywhere I looked, because, as you point out, the physical situation wasn't the norm. Uh, and, of course, I had no experience. So, you know, I thought that I was going to be immediately what I wanted to be, but it wasn't possible. And the other way to, in America, at that time, 25 years ago, one of the ways to, to, to move up in journalism, whether it be print or broadcast, was go to the small markets and then move your way up if you're lucky. And if you're really lucky, get to uh, the national level. But that route wasn't available to me because I didn't fit the sort of paradigm of the moment. So at WJAR, my colleagues and friends said to me, hey, you know, there's this new thing, cable, Ted Turner. And we've heard some English accents on there. Maybe you can try and go there. So that's what I did. And uh, I called them up. And, uh, you know, CNN, I will never say chicken noodle news, but it was cheap at the beginning. It didn't, uh, (laughs) you know, it didn't fly us down for interviews and things like that. But I did call the personnel department, such as it was. And they gave me a quiz on the telephone, 10 questions. One of those was, what was the capital of Iran? (laughs) So, um, you know, they hired me. I was going to be a graphic designer. And when I got, that means the chirons, the words, which is what I was doing at, um, at WJR. And it was terrifying. I was actually every night in this live environment in the studio. And there was one serious director who didn't mess around. And the uh, weatherman would call me up on the wrong weather things that I would punch in all the time on the air. So I was nightly, you know, no, knew that I was doing the wrong thing because I was <laughs> punching in the wrong weather forecast and this and that. In any event, um, I went down to Atlanta and I got there thinking I was going to start punching in, you know, words on the screen. And the personnel director said to me, hey, you're foreign there's a vacancy on the foreign desk. So that's, that's what happened. You're listening to The Calb Report on the CBS Radio Network. You know, researching your career, I had the impression that there was one story that was very special to you, a very memorable story, where you say you found your voice, and that was the war in Bosnia yeah. in the early 1990s. Why was it that special to you and explain to all of us here, what do you mean by you found your voice? Well, I tell you, um, 
having worked my way through the ranks at CNN from, from desk assistant and wanting to be a reporter and having this view of what it was to be a reporter, which was, you know, you, people like you, trench-coated, you know, out there doing it, glamorous. You know, I wanted to be part of the, of the fraternity and run around the world on somebody else's dime and have a great time and hopefully write the stories as well. Um, my first big story was the Gulf War, which was an amazing thing to cover. It was just an amazing, dramatic piece of, of military theater, but it was organized. There was Saddam Hussein who invaded Kuwait. He had an army. It turned out not to be the great army that, that the West thought it was. We had the United States and its allies, 500,000 US and allied troops, and there was a battlefield, and it was organized, and we knew how to cover it, and, and we knew the story, and it wasn't that long. Fast forward a few months, and I got plunged into the breakup of Yugoslavia. And I went to Bosnia. I covered it from the beginning, Croatia, Slovenia, and then Bosnia. And what we found in Bosnia was that there we were with a civilian population in a city called Sarajevo, which many people knew because it had the Olympic Games. Perhaps that's the only reason they knew it, but Americans knew that city. Mm -hmm. And it became very clear very quickly that this was a different game altogether, that we were civilians watching and observing from ground, right on the ground, civilians being slaughtered. And we quickly realized that they were being slaughtered for their ethnicity, for their religion, for, their, for the very fact of who they were. And we were sitting in this little bowl called Sarajevo, surrounded by heavy weaponry on the hills and besieged and bombarded and sniped at on a daily basis. And beyond the danger and the hardships, we also knew from our history and from our reality that this was something particularly bad, that this was something that went beyond people just killing each other, that this was something we had been taught should never happen again. And it was happening on our watch, in our backyard, in Europe, in the 1990s, in full view of satellite technology. And we realized that this is a genocide. And I understood, after getting some criticism about my coverage, people said that, uh, some people said, not many, but some people said that I was uh, too pro the Sarajevans, too pro one side. And I was very upset because that went to the heart of what it meant to be a journalist. And I took it very seriously, being a journalist, and, uh, and what did objectivity mean? And I redefined for myself that word. And I said that objectivity means giving all sides a fair hearing. It does not mean treating all sides equally. It does not mean drawing a false equivalence when no equivalence exists. It does not mean saying that the little boy or the woman or the old man who was slaughtered as he went to get bread or, or lined up uh, to get water or whatever <laughs> it was is somehow equal or somehow the same as the person who's sitting on the hills and choosing to bombard and snipe and slaughter. And so this voice yes, issue. Yes, this is what you know, made me realize that we have a duty to tell the truth, even when the truth is not comfortable, even when the truth is not what everybody wants to hear, even when 
our body politic, our leaders, whether it was in the United States, Europe, or wherever, they didn't want to hear it because it meant having to do something about it. And they wanted to tell the world, and they did for several years, that this was just an ugly civil war, that this was centuries of ethnic hatred and ethnic strife, and we couldn't do anything about it. This was, these, these were the political leaders. And your, the discovery of your voice was the discovery of the centrality of truth in broadcasting. Yes. That, that the essence of journalism was to get as close to the truth yes. as you possibly can. Now, do you believe in the lead up to the war in Iraq that the American people were given the truth? Did they find their voice? Well, I mean, clearly not. Let's not beat around the bush. And this has been hashed over for years now. For years since the Iraq war, this has been hashed over. And there have been many good studies and many important books written post the Iraq war. The, the issue is what did we all do and what was our role as a profession before the Iraq war? And I've said it before and I'll say it again that I believe that we failed as a profession to do our duty, which is simply to ask the hard questions, to stay on it, to, to fact check and to cross check and not just to take one version of the story, hook, line, and sinker. There were many distinguished American journalists who did do that, who rigorously demanded the facts, who rigorously went and asked the hard questions, who, when somebody claimed that X, went out and cross-checked it and found that, in fact, Y. There were people who did that. But the tidal wave at the time was this march towards this, this action. And I think by not enough rigorous holding to account, I would say that this profession partly enabled that war. You said, quote, my station, by which I assume you mean CNN, was intimidated by the administration and its foot soldiers at Fox News. It put a climate of fear and self-censorship into what we did. You said we failed, we were the enablers, which you have just repeated. And that is very strong criticism, you know that. And I'm wondering whether since that criticism was leveled first in 2002 and three, whether looking back now, you feel that that criticism was justified at the time, and do you feel it is justified in the coverage since the invasion of 03? I don't think it's justified in the cover of since 03. I think everybody um, immediately, very quickly immediately. saw, quickly saw the reality of what was going on on, on the ground. When we got to Iraq, for instance, um, having covered the war and having covered the troops going up into Baghdad, I got to Baghdad around the time when the statue fell and, mm -hmm. and, and the liberation of, of Baghdad. And I genuinely believe that the people of Iraq in that city at that time really wanted to be freed of this monstrous tyranny. And I genuinely believe, because I saw it, that there was a moment of opportunity. And we reported a lot of things about the, the, the feelings of the people then. And then, because there was a power vacuum at the time in, 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 in Baghdad, we also reported the looting the frenzy of, of disorder that, that, that went on after the war. 
And we reported that again. We did it honestly, we did it factually, we had the pictures, we had the stories, the testimonials, we were the eyewitnesses and we reported it and everybody did. Um, there was still a huge amount of denial back at base at the Pentagon and in the various arms of, uh, of government here in the United States and, and elsewhere. And we also reported about the insurgency and the terrorism, but uh, people didn't want to hear it. So it took a while, I think, for the, 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 the leadership to really believe what was going on on the ground. And, the and leadership take some... of your network? No, 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 no. I'm talking about the military here. Yeah. Okay, but when you talk about your network having been intimidated... No, that was, that was before. I said, I, I believe... I understand. But what happens when they're intimidated? Well, Do I stories think, not get on the I air? Think, I think it's a, it's a state of mind. Look, let's just be very frank. 9-11 was a terrible, terrible thing that happened and shocked everybody, everybody. And I don't think journalists were immune from that. I think that it was a real national trauma. And I understand that. It was an international trauma too, but obviously much more so mm -hmm. a national trauma. <clears throat> and I believe that when uh, senior leaders said that the President of the United States, if you remember, gave a phenomenal speech in Congress shortly after that and made a lot of, uh, of statements. But he also said, you're either with us or with the terrorists. And I, I, when I heard that, read that as being, you know, those people who harbor terrorists, you better, you know, decide which way you are now because either you're on that side or you're on this side. But I think a lot of people internalize that and felt that if we somehow don't toe the, the line, then we are suspect as well. That's what I think psychologically happened to a lot of people. And I also think that, I don't think, there was a chorus of people who questioned people's patriotism if they didn't toe the party line, who questions people's, you know, right to exist just about. So I think that whole, you know, that whole atmosphere was going on then. And um, I think it changed very dramatically after the war. I want to talk to you about personal danger. But first, uh, let's pause for a moment while I tell our radio and television audiences that they're watching or listening to The Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb, and my guest is Christian Amanpour, CNN's chief international correspondent. Christian, in the audience with us is Kimberly Dozier, a CBS News correspondent who was seriously wounded covering the Iraq war. Her crew was killed. More journalists died covering stories last year, I believe, than in any previous year. 88, I think, is the number that I read. From your point of view, is there a point beyond which covering a story is simply not worth the personal risk, where you can just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I think it depends on, on who you are and what point of your life and your career you're at. Explain that. Well, because, look, Kimberly's sitting here in the audience. She's a, a living, breathing example of what can happen to you, and she's very lucky, and we all touch wood. 
<laughs> and we're all pleased that she's here. Paul Douglas, who was killed, was my friend and my colleague. I'd worked with him all the way through Bosnia. He shot one of our last pieces in, in, in Iraq when I was working at 60 Minutes. And we've had many, many people who haven't made it. Many, many friends and colleagues who paid that ultimate price. We <clears> believe, no, I'm going to say I believe, I can't speak for everybody, that we are, that I believe that I belong to a band of people who are desperately and genuinely committed to the power of this profession, to a purposeful profession that we know when it's done right by people who love it, who know what it can do, who know the value of reporting the truth, of reporting human stories. What a phenomenal bastion of our society journalism can be. So you ask, is it worth the price? We make a choice. We chose, I chose to do that job. I chose not to be comfortable. I chose to accept that risk. I chose a difficult physical and psychological job. And all of us who do this know, I think, what it means. And the, the real tragedy is that today, people like Kimberly and, and, and others who are working you know, today in the field are deliberately targeted by people who are not hold to, held to account. In your day and, and, and our previous generations, journalists were mostly killed in the crossfire. The appalling statistic and truth today is that the leading cause of death amongst journalists, for people like me, for people like Kimberly, for all the journalists in this room who want to go out and do this job, the, the primary cause of our death is deliberate. We don't die of they heart attacks. They want to kill reporters. Yes, we are murdered. We are silenced because people don't want to hear the truth. It is as simple as that and as terrible as that. Hmm. And so those you, of us who believe in the truth, we have to stand up and keep doing it. You said in a speech eight years ago, and by the way, you deliver wonderful speeches to graduating students. I've enjoyed reading them in, in preparing Thank for you. this. Quote, I have spent almost every working day in the past 10 years living in a state of repressed fear. At another point, you said you spent all your working life scared scared of being shot, of being kidnapped, of being raped by some lunatic. And yet you kept going back. Maybe I'm the lunatic, but no. I mean, did, did the fact that you became a mother eight years ago, big M for motherhood, uh, did that change your attitude toward going into the field? Well, I, I did use the word repressed fear because the point is, how do you manage fear? And of course, I was afraid. And of course, you know, look, it's like people who choose to go on extreme vacations. This is an extreme profession. <laughs> and we know, you know, we know. But it doesn't mean to say that you can take it with equanimity. It is hard. This is hard. And we do it because we love it and because we think it's important. Um, yes, it made it much more difficult when I became a mother because I used to not worry that I had somebody dependent on me. And now I have a husband and a son who I love. And it made me much more fearful and much more vigilant about, about myself. So that whereas I used to be somewhat more cavalier about my own, you know, what I, did I wear my helmet all the time? Did I put my, uh, 
bulletproof jacket on all the time. I didn't, but I did start doing that when I, was, uh, when I had my son and when I got married. And the fact of the matter is that it has also become exponentially more, da more dangerous. It is more dangerous today than it was when I was in Bosnia, which, by the way, when we were in Bosnia, that was the most dangerous conflict of all time. The bar keeps getting moved. Now, uh, over the last couple of years, I've noticed that the kind of story that you've covered has changed. That whereas before you might be on every single night covering a hard news story, you're now more apt to do documentaries, long-form journalism. Now, is that a decision on your part? Is that what CNN wants you to do now? Um, is that what happens after your mother? Well, look, I, um, I reported uh, from the front lines for, for you know, seven years after I became a mother. You I did. was a mother in 9-11. I was a mother you know, during the Iraq war. Um, I made a decision, along with CNN, that this was a good way to, to, to really use pictures and people's voices and to be able to do the kind of reporting that I used to do on a daily report daily basis, but for which there isn't that as much space anymore. Mm -hmm. And also, I think that, you know, CNN, I do believe, has distinguished itself very, very, very well in being committed to this kind of long-form documentary strand. Mm -hmm. And while other networks were doing it very well, um, they've scaled back a lot on that kind of thing. And I think that for me, it's a real way to get, again, into the story to really be able to go out and do, you know, really, you know, good reporting, great pictures, great interviews, hopefully, and, um, and come back and put it together. You've spoken very warmly and highly of CNN and its decision to allow you to do this kind of documentary work. The question I have is sort of historical in a way. When you were first interviewed by somebody like Ted Turner, Turner was the founder of CNN, and what he said, which I always found terribly interesting because I worked at CBS and NBC and it was a different environment completely, as, as you know. What he said was, at CNN, the news is our star. We don't have star journalists. We have the news and anybody can do it who does it well. Yes. So they could have a young Christian Amanpour do the news because she did it well. But CNN today is not that at all. CNN is a succession of hours with stars filling each one of these slots. And I was wondering if you sense, as somebody from the inside, whether you notice this kind of a change, whether you are aware of the star system having affected CNN as well as all of the other networks. You know, what I'd like to say is that CNN is a phenomenon. CNN is a name that means a huge amount, not just in this country, oh, but around the world. And it's, it's, it means trust, and it means hard news, and it means breaking news. I think we were probably the first to use that. <clears throat> and in my view, everything that's come after has been a copy and an imitation, because Ted Turner started it. He was the pioneer. When nobody believed in him, and nobody believed it was possible that that a small insurgent cable network could become the big league, that people would be interested in news 24-7. And now look, if there were more hours in the day, people would be glued to either the television or their computers. He democratized information by taking it uh, internationally 
and gave people who live in state-controlled media situations another avenue to see you know, different things. And we were a band of true believers. And those of us who are still there and have been there for a long, long time, including the current president of all of CNN, Jim Walton, who's been there longer than I have from the day CNN started, mm -hmm. understand this important legacy and this important franchise. The climate has changed. The climate has changed. And I think everybody has, has, has had a really hard time uh, trying to figure out how do you cope? How do you compete? What do you do? So you bring in stars. Well, I don't think it's so much stars. I mean, yes, I mean, this is a celebrity culture. And yes, that's part of it. But it's also about trying to reach people in a way that, uh, that gets people to watch. And, you know, you can look around and you can look at the alternative and you can say, you know, we're getting huge ratings right now. The political story is a massive story. It's the biggest domestic story in years. It's fascinating, not just for here, but for everybody around the world who's watching True. and glued to True. the television. True. And we're providing that. So, you know, is it exactly as it was back then? No. Do we have to change? Yes. I keep, you know, punching and fighting and lobbying to do the kind of stories that I think are important. And Is I get to do them. Is it harder to win those battles now? It's different. It's different. Um, it's, I think that if you look at uh, the, 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 the landscape in general, you won't see um, what I call a, a Bosnia environment, where I got on the, the news and so did everybody, whether Very they nice. were ABC, NBC, CBS, whether it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, everybody told that story on the front page and in the A block back then. That doesn't really happen, especially not for international news mm -hmm. right now. But um, are we there when it matters? Can I do these things in a, in a one-hour format, whether it's a documentary on Putin and Russia ahead of the parliamentary elections, um, whether it was God's Warriors, which was hugely successful. I want to ask you about that. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. You did a three-part, six-hour documentary, God's Warriors, about Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the trade newspaper Variety gave the series very high marks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Call it a tough, smart, historically grounded look at the intractability of these issues. Your ratings were excellent in that series. A colleague of yours, however, at MSNBC called it shoddy journalism. Another at MSNBC said you were engaging in moral equivalency, which was the phrase used earlier when you were talking about Bosnia. And so that we understand each other, we're talking here about equating an Islamic suicide bomber, for example, with a Christian or Jewish fundamentalist Who or evangelical. Equating? Who was doing the equating? Uh, the charges That's that what you they, were. Yeah, they yes. accused, yeah. Yeah. A number of Jewish organizations demanded that CNN correct mistakes and inaccuracies. And in fact, CNN did re-edit the Judaism program. Um, so my questions are very simple yeah. ones. All right. Were there errors and inaccuracies? Were you engaging in moral equivalency? The answer is no and no. Now, do you want to go on from there? Yes, I will. I will. Were there inaccuracies? No, there wasn't. There was a... a um, we, I think we call somebody representative instead of 
congressman or something like that. We got, we got one sort of name a little bit off, but we corrected that. But the fact of the matter is that nobody was able to blow holes at all in this piece of work. It was a rigorous piece of journalism which approached a subject that's on everybody's minds, and that is, what do we do in this world where politics, culture, and, um, and society all interconnect and sometimes collide? We went out specifically, and this was part of our, you know, when we, pro when we promoted it, when we talked about it, when we talked to reviewers or whoever it was, we chose to focus on the extremes of each of those uh, religions. We chose the three uh, monotheistic religions, and we chose to, to, to discuss how the extremes on, in each religion affect, in their own different ways, the culture, society, and politics of what was going on. Hence, we did three different two-hour programs. We did not do one big program and uh, equate or do anything like that. And I will... Uh, basically tell you this anecdote. There were one or two groups who were very upset about it, whose basic job is to comb through everything the media does, and if the media doesn't toe their political line, to then get very upset and exercised about it. They tried to... Uh, they, they, they wanted to make it difficult for us, and they wanted to get Who are these, they? The, the, these groups that you're talking about, the groups that, that uh, were putting pressure on us. There was a, there's a group called Camera, for mm -hmm. instance. And we were very careful and clear about our reporting. And we did a historic, actually in the Jewish segment, we did a historic report of, of um, uh, the 1967 war mm -hmm. and how that led to settlements. It was a moment in history 40 years ago that we reported, and we had phenomenal access. We talked to all the players in Israel, and it was really phenomenal. And we got virtually no criticism from Israel, none. And in fact, we got people explaining that actually, you know, this is what we know, and this is how it was. Um, so we got a lot, of, a lot of good support. So basically, I accept that people will criticize. Our job is simply to make sure that we are honest, that we're rigorous, that we don't make mistakes, that we don't take a political uh, tract okay. or but an I, ideological tract, and we didn't. But I want to take you down the road a little bit more on the moral equivalency. Oh, sorry, idea. yes. Well, of course, I said we Be did not try to equate these at all. I understand that. But when you talk, for example, about an extreme form of Islam, mm -hmm. You're talking about suicide bombers. You're talking about people who would go out and quite deliberately kill civilians. Mm -hmm. You spoke about your reporting from Bosnia. When you were talking about um, an extremist in a Christian context, you're talking not about people who would go out and kill all kinds of people left and right. They might have done that five, six hundred years ago, but they're not doing it now. And in the... In the um, more extreme form, fundamentalist form of Judaism. Likewise, they're not going out and killing civilians because they're civilians. So when you attack that from that perspective, it, it's, it seems that the argument is valid about an unbalance in this moral equivalency because you, it's very hard to say that the three are more or less in the same category. 
But you're assuming that that's what we said, which is not what we said. No, I saw the broadcast. Okay. And, and it seems to me that when you deal with an extreme form of those three faiths, you're getting yourself into an area which is very hard to put on the same scale. But Marvin, I understand your... You don't your, buy that? No, I don't. I don't buy it. If we had tried to draw a moral equivalency, it would have been obvious, and we would have been justly criticized. Um, I understand the sensitivities, and we understood it clear-eyed when we went into it. And we did this knowing that this topic could be explosive. But we didn't do it because it was explosive, nor did we do it in a way to make it explosive. Nor would I think you would. No, but we did it because... It is, it's, it's, it's what shapes all of us right now, the idea of how to deal with extremism. And while there are very different kinds of extremism, there is nonetheless extremism. Some is political, some is cultural, some is about land, peace, war, and some is about a nihilistic uh, violence that goes on in, uh, in other parts of the world. And I think that it was extremely important and useful to tell these stories. And I believe that the majority of our viewers around the world and in the United States also saw the value of, 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 of telling well, these no stories doubt of that. But, and did not complain. We got about the most, we got so much commentary about this, uh, about this series and people overwhelmingly saying, you know, Thank you for telling us this story. And I'll tell you one other thing. I'm a foreign correspondent. I've worked in Israel all my, all my career. I've seen the rigorous democratic free press process that happens in Israel, where these vital issues of, of war and peace between Israelis and the Palestinians are debated in all their minutiae every day in the newspapers and on television in the most vigorous and sometimes bitter and harsh manner, with jabs and counter jabs and punches flying all over the place. And Israel is rightly held up as the bastion of a free press in the Middle East, the bastion of democracy in the Middle East. And I guess my sensitization is, is from where I report from, from the world. And I know that it is difficult sometimes to accept when you're when you're in the United States or when you're outside and you feel, you know, a much fiercer protection. But I know also that we reported the truth, that we reported without drawing a moral equivalence and that it was a really important six hours. And I give CNN credit, not just for devoting six hours to this amazing subject, but I give our audiences credit and I give CNN credit for banking on an audience wanting some meat and potatoes, some brain food, and we gave it to them. You absolutely did. There's no question. They were very good documentaries. There is an issue, there is an issue in a very complicated world, which is the adjective you used. A very complicated world, we get into definitions, and we lay our own reality on the same word. Extremism, for example, mm. can be viewed by an, an Islamic radical in one way and deny that it's extremism at all. Mm. It is simply an acting out of God's will. Mm. So 
I guess we're in an environment now where we're all wired, the world is wired, we're all there together, we're all picking up information live, and this is a new phenomenon where we're going to have to be awfully smart about the way in which we absorb fresh information. And to the degree that you're providing that, there's no question that you are. I think that's a, a feather in your cap, and I take my hat off to you. You're listening to The Calb Report on the CBS Radio Network. We're talking about this crazy world of journalism. And somebody like Bob Herbert of the New York Times can say that television news is not, you use the word blurring, is not just blurring into entertainment, it's gone into entertainment. Now, easy, easy. (laughs) Um, One, you agree or not that it's entertainment. Two, is there a way, do you think, that if we're moving in that direction, that somebody could stand up, blow the whistle, and say, enough. We're not going to go any further down this path. What do you think has to happen? Individuals who say enough and that we're going to uh, follow our path and follow uh, what we know to be the right way to, to do this profession and, and for us not to be afraid. You know, I, every single day, I'm not afraid. Not just physically, but I know that I have been lucky in this profession. I know that I'm sitting on this platform talking to you, therefore I've achieved a certain level in my job. You're at the top. And I'm going to use it. (laughs) I'm going to use it to do what I think is the right thing. I may be wrong, but I'm going to use it, and I'm not going to sit back and be silent. And I'm going to hopefully convince all these young people here that this is a great profession, that they shouldn't be, you know, despaired and disappointed and worried about, you know, people forcing them to do X, Y, and Z, that if they want to, they can do this and they can do it right. And in fact, there's so much space now because you're not just limited to people who might tell you yes or no. You've got all the platforms at your disposal. I worry a little bit that young people, I say young people like I'm old, that the younger generation is, um, is maybe a little bit, um, is not as exposed to some of the excitement and the, the history of how great journalism can be and what, uh, and what it's all about and maybe think that the right thing is just to do celebrity, just to do sensation, just to do you know, what's easy. Um, I think, as I said before, it takes, it takes, and more so now, mental, physical, and moral stamina to just, to just try to do, you know, to try to do what you think is right. But, but we've talked about tipping points in yeah. Condoleezza so Rice talks about that in global affairs, and we're now talking about it in, in journalism. Are we at a tipping point? Do you feel that if it continues to go down this path, toward trivialization of fact and trivialization of the news, that we may reach a point where we can't go back? We can't recapture what was or find some higher ground? Look, I think we've been saying this for years and years and years. And the truth is that it is in danger, and we are a slightly endangered species, and particularly the foreign correspondent is an endangered species. 
But it doesn't mean to say it's extinct, and it doesn't mean to say that those people who believe in it and who can do it uh, are going to be drowned out. I think that um, there are so many, as I said, different platforms and different areas where you know, there can be sort of an insurgent camp, I use that word a lot, uh, campaign to sort of you know, get this profession uh, and grab it by, uh, by the horns. But what I truly know and what I have, have absorbed from traveling all over the world is that information and accurate, reliable information based on facts is something that a society cannot do without, is something that a democracy cannot do without. Information is our God now. We live in the information age, right? Well, then we have to have solid information. And there have to be purveyors of that information. There have to be people who are willing to go out and not just talk or write, but go out and find the information. Not just sit back and write what they think and sit on the blogs. It's all fine, that. But it's not, it's not sufficient alone. You know, we have to be able to get the balance right. We have to start getting, you know, the, 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 the balance. The balance is out of whack right now. You've slightly answered this question, but let me read this quote of yours. We're in the huge, complicated, cataclysmic grip of a new round of history. And that's a, that's a marvelous phrase. I think I know what you mean by it. But what do you mean? Do I don't you mean? know. It was a good phrase. Um, <laughs> well... Look, I think extremism is one of them and how to get our head around uh, coping with that. Understanding it. Uh, yes, and figuring out how, with, a war, with ideas that we can win, you know, because it's not going to be won any way other than, than the war of ideas. I think that's one thing. And I think how to manage the information age is, is, another, is another thing. And by that I mean how to cut through the noise and accept that there's a lot of noise, but how to cut through it to the heart of what's going on. Because if we don't know what's going on, who are we? What are we? When I go abroad, I am stunned by the way people are intimately familiar with almost everything of importance in this country. The names, the jobs, the, the politics. Well, I just, yes, whether it's in politics, whether it's in arts, whether it's in the cinema, whatever it is. I give you 30 seconds. Hmm. Oh. What is your message to all of the journalism students out here? My message is to, to be a believer. My message is to believe in this profession and to realize that in civil society, particularly in this society, where the press is called the fourth estate, that that takes with it a responsibility, that we who have this platform have an immense responsibility on our shoulders, and that is to use it well, to use it to the best of our ability, and to use it for the right purpose and not for the wrong purpose, because we all have a choice. We all have a choice. We can go this way or we can go that way. And each and every one of us knows, and we have to be able to trust ourselves and not be afraid to make the right choice. That's my message. Christian, I could go on with you all night, but I think our time's up. I want to thank you so much for taking the time and making the effort to come down and talk to us. I know that I speak for everyone in this audience when I say thanks for making that effort and thanks so much for helping us understand this complicated, cataclysmic world in which we live. <laughs> thank you for having me. That's it for now. Thank you all for being here.
I'm Marvin Kalb, saying good night and good luck. Thank you. The Kalb Report is directed by Robert Vitarelli. The producers are Heather Date and Tina Creek. Our executive producer is Michael Friedman. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. For more information about the Kalb Report, please visit kalb.gwu.edu or call 202-994-8810. This forum was presented before a live audience at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. The Kalb Report is produced in association with the CBS Radio Network.